The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Donald Trump did it. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump did it. Mm -hmm. And all his uh, saying no, no, no uh, is not true. For the first time, a former president has been found liable for sexual abuse and defamation. Donald Trump has been accused by more than a dozen women of sexual misconduct, but never before had a jury weighed those claims. And after deliberating for less than three hours... That New York jury of six men and three women found that Trump had sexually abused and defamed E. Jean Carroll, a writer who accused him of raping her in a department store in the mid-90s. Carroll said getting that verdict was probably the happiest day of her life. I'm overwhelmed, overwhelmed with joy and happiness and delight for the women in this country. The jury awarded Carroll $5 million in combined damages. Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopina, said they would appeal, apparently taking some solace in the fact that the jury found that Trump had not raped Carol. For me, it's just about the results. And at the end of the day, while, you know, it was strange, uh, part of me was obviously very happy that Donald Trump was not branded a rapist. Um, I didn't think there should be any liability findings, so we'll pursue it. And on his Truth Social platform, the former president called a verdict a political hit job. I have absolutely no idea who this woman is, he said. This verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School. Jessica, what does this verdict stand for? Well, I think it was a resounding vindication of Egypt Carroll. The jury took less than three hours to return a unanimous verdict in her favor after a trial that was about two weeks. It found that Donald Trump committed battery when he sexually abused Ms. Carroll in the mid-1990s at a Bergdorf Goodman's dressing room, and that he defamed her in 2022 when he denied publicly her allegations after she had gone public with them. And the jury's award of $5 million to Ms. Carroll, mostly for compensatory rather than punitive damages, demonstrates not only that the jury credited Ms. Carroll's account about the attack, but also her testimony about how Trump's actions had harmed her. The jury found that Trump did not rape Carol. They found sexual abuse. Her testimony was that she was raped. So does that mean they didn't fully buy her testimony, or was this a compromise verdict? I don't think I would characterize it as a compromise verdict. My sense of the case is that it was a very important through line that there was a pattern of how Trump attacked women sexually. It was the account that was given by the two other women who had come forward and who were permitted to testify at the trial about how Trump had assaulted them, and also the account that Trump himself gave in that now infamous Access Hollywood video, where he talked about how when he would see a woman, he would just move on her, as he said, 
and start kissing her and touching her and grab her by the genitals without asking for permission. In a sense, that was the narrative that was just repeated over and over again throughout the trial. And that narrative is most consistent with sexual abuse, which doesn't involve an element of penetration by his genitals. And so to the extent that that consistent narrative was important to the jury's quick verdict, it makes sense that they would essentially check the box for sexual abuse because that's most consistent with the account that they heard over and over again. So the standard on that count was preponderance of the evidence that the claims were more likely to be true than false. But as far as the defamation claim The standard was higher, although not as high as a criminal case. Can you explain the standard in the defamation claim? The standard for the defamation claim was clear and convincing evidence, which is higher than the normal civil liability standard of a preponderance, more likely than not, but lower than the burden of proof in a criminal case of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury found that that standard of clear and convincing was established for her defamation claim, and they awarded damages for the battery claim and damages for the defamation claim separately. You mentioned the short deliberations, under three hours. Do you think that's a result of the fact that Trump didn't put on a case? It may have been. In part, it was probably a reaction to the fact that there wasn't all that much evidence for them to sort through. And if the Trump side had put on a defense, there would have been simply perhaps more evidence for them to go through. Instead, they had to evaluate the witnesses and the evidence that was presented to them, which was all from the plaintiff's side. The plaintiff put on Ms. Carroll's testimony, which was quite vivid and detailed, and then the testimony of the two friends whom she had called very soon after the attack, one immediately afterward that same night and the other one within a day or two afterward. And those witnesses, I think, were very important to rehabilitate Ms. Carroll's credibility after it was attacked on cross-examination by Trump's lawyers, who essentially suggested that she had fabricated her claim in 2019 when she wrote her book in order to gain sort of fame and fortune by selling her book, and also because of some kind of political bias against Trump once he had already become president. And so to rehabilitate Ms. Carroll's credibility from that line of attack, the plaintiff was permitted to put on those two friends to whom Carroll had given prior consistent statements about the attack to show that she had been making the same claim, that she had told the same story long before Trump was running for president or was president, long before she was writing or trying to sell a book or had any any motive of the kind that the defense alleged to be telling this story. So I think those two friends' testimony was very important. And then, of course, the testimony of the two other women who I mentioned a moment ago who testified about sexual assault by Trump that were very consistent with the kind of attack that Ms. Carroll described and that also Mr. Trump, in his own words, discussed on the Access Hollywood tape. Trump didn't appear in the courtroom at all during the trial, and instead the jury saw bits of his videotaped deposition that were selected by the plaintiff. Did that hurt his case? I mean, does the jury say he doesn't even care enough to show up? It's hard to know exactly what the jury thought as a consequence of Trump not showing up. I do think that there is a risk that they thought that Trump was not showing respect for the forum or for the claim by not showing up. At the same time, he may have 
done himself no favors had he been in the courtroom if he exhibited certain behaviors or a demeanor that communicated a similar message. So it's hard to say exactly how that all shook out. I will say that the deposition that was admitted into evidence where Trump was, for example, shown a photograph of E. Jean Carroll. He was shaking her hand essentially on a receiving line, and he misidentified her as his former wife, Marla Maples. I thought it was a, a devastating moment because he had been saying, oh, she's not my type, as though that were a reason why he wouldn't sexually assault her. But it certainly belied the claim that she wasn't his type when he misidentified her in a photograph as his former wife. And then there was a devastating moment in the deposition as well where he's asked about the Access Hollywood tape. And he essentially said that what he had claimed on that tape, that stars could assault women and essentially get away with it, and and women would let you do that to them. They would let you grab them without consent. He said that that had been true historically, and then he added on, fortunately or unfortunately. And that was just an extraordinary moment. The idea that he would affirm that he thought that that was true, that stars could do it, and that there was a, a way to look at that as fortunate in some circumstances. I think that that was just a a terrible moment for the defense. The plaintiff didn't ask for a specific sum. Do you know where the jury got those numbers from? There was an expert who testified for the plaintiff about the amount of money it would take to repair her reputation. And that was, I believe, a professor of marketing who testified that there was a range that she had calculated of what it would cost to do essentially reputational repair. And she estimated it would be on the low end in the high 300,000s of dollars, on the high end $2.7 million. And so if you look at what the jury awarded for damages, at least for the defamation claim, I believe they gave $1 million for compensatory damages not having to do with repairing her reputation, and then $1.7 million for reputational repair. And then where they came up with the $2 million in compensatory damages for the battery claim, I'm not sure. They also added on punitive damages of $20,000 for the battery claim and $280,000 in punitive damages for the defamation claim, which is how we get all together to $5 million. But I thought it was interesting that they chose the numbers that they did, frankly, and that the punitive damages were relatively insignificant given the overall total of the damages award. To me, that suggested that they really did credit Ms. Carroll's testimony about how she had been harmed by the battery and the consequences it had had on her life, and that they didn't award an extraordinary amount in punitive damages. When you think about it, it's really quite restrained, $20,000 in punitives on the battery charge and 280000 on the defamation charge, suggests that this was not a political verdict on Trump, but really about compensating Ms. Carroll for the harm she had suffered. That struck me, too, that the punitives were quite low. I want to go through some of the appellate issues that Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopina, mentioned. So one was that E. Jean Carroll should not have been allowed to play that Access Hollywood recording for the jury. I'm wondering if you think that's a, a strong point on appeal. I don't. I mean, in general, evidentiary rulings are subject to an abusive discretion standard of review on appeal. And Judge Kaplan wrote an opinion about why he was admitting the Access Hollywood tape, as well as the testimony of the two other women, about other assaults by Trump against them. And so it's a well-written, reasoned opinion. And 
he cites the particular federal rule of evidence that permits evidence of other sexual offenses by a defendant who's been charged in a case, including in a civil case, with offensive sexual conduct. These are rules of evidence that are not frequently utilized because very few cases involving sexual offenses are actually litigated in federal court. Those are overwhelmingly cases tried in state court. Most states do not have analogous rules of evidence that are so permissive about admitting in other acts of a sexual nature committed by a defendant. But the federal system does have these special rules for cases involving sexual offenses And they are explicitly permissive in terms of allowing in evidence of other sexual conduct and permitting a jury to make inferences about a defendant's propensity to engage in such conduct based on that prior conduct. So it's diametrically opposed to how lawyers normally think about other act evidence and the uses to which it can and can't be put in litigation. So these are rules that apply only in federal court and in very few state jurisdictions that have adopted similar rules, but they applied here. And I think that really worked to Trump's disadvantage. But it also means because the rules are so explicit and Judge Kaplan was very clear in relying upon them, that it's hard for me to see how an appellate court would overrule his decision. There were also some others. He raises the fact that Trump couldn't get a fair trial from a Manhattan jury and the decision to keep the names of the jurors anonymous and barring the mention of Carol's litigation financing from a major Democratic Party donor. Do any of those strike you? The anonymous jury question is, I think, an interesting one, and it's novel. And my understanding is that Judge Kaplan raised the issue, and it was his idea to have an anonymous jury. I don't believe that was something requested by either party. So I mentioned it's interesting because it's novel. I don't see that as being a particularly strong issue on appeal. I think the defense would have to spell out how they were prejudiced by the jury having been anonymized. But that's the one that I think would potentially be of most interest to the circuit court. Although, as I said, I'm not sure that I see that it's particularly meritorious. On the issue of not being able to cross Jean Carroll about the donor and bias, again, I think that ruling is going to be subject to abusive discretion. And the defense really was permitted to probe bias, including political bias, of Ms. Carroll, as well as the other witnesses the plaintiff called. So even if an appellate court were to find there were error there, they would likely find it to be harmless error, I think, because that issue was so thoroughly explored. So it sounds like winning an appeal would be an uphill battle? I think so. Mentioning the secrecy of the jurors. So now that the trial is concluded, obviously the jurors are free to identify themselves publicly, but the judge encouraged them not to do so. Quote, my advice to you is not to identify yourselves, not now and not for a long time, he said after the verdict. That's pretty unusual, isn't it? Very unusual for a judge to say. It is very unusual. And as I said a moment ago, swearing in a jury using an anonymous jury in a civil case is extremely unusual as well. So I see his instructions to the jurors once they were discharged about maintaining the privacy of their identities, I think is consistent with that decision on the front end to 
use an anonymous jury. I think that there were very good reasons for Judge Kaplan to do what he did here and to give that instruction to the jury at the end. Given the social media postings by President Trump in this case and in other cases where he's essentially urged his supporters to take action and defend him in a way that can prove dangerous to those who he's identified as his enemies, his political enemies, So I think that there is a very good record upon which the judge was drawing when he chose to make the jury anonymous and when he encouraged the jurors to maintain that anonymity going forward. E. Jean Carroll said that through this trial, they demolished the concept of the perfect victim who always screams, always reports to police, always makes notes of when it happened. But, you know, a jury verdict has no precedential value. Do you think that this will really make a difference in future rape cases? It's hard to say. I think that the fact that this case got so much publicity may have an impact in terms of affecting the public consciousness so that future jurors who are impaneled in future cases involving allegations of sexual assault may remember this case and may remember that the plaintiff prevailed. And it may be part of a much larger cultural conversation that may take years to percolate and for there to be significant impacts in courtrooms. But I do think that it is a significant event in terms of potentially shaping people's consciousness about how survivors of sexual assault behave in the moment of the assault, right? The allegation, you know, why didn't you scream in the moments afterward, like why she didn't go to police. And then in the years afterward, because of course, part of what Mr. Trump's lawyer's suggested was that she had essentially been too happy in the years afterward. So I think that this case does perhaps mark a significant turning point in public understanding about the different ways in which somebody who has experienced sexual assault might behave at all those points in time, in the moment, immediately afterward, and in the years to come. Thanks so much for your insights, Jessica. That's Professor Jessica Roth of Cardozo Law School. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Massachusetts attorneys are advising businesses to rethink the way they pay and fire employees in the wake of a state top court decision that puts them on the hook for triple damages when they're late on a paycheck. Compliance trainings for managers and monitoring payroll providers are just some of the things companies are doing to mitigate legal risk after the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court's game-changing 2022 ruling. Companies are still grappling with that ruling one year later. Joining me is Michelle D'Alavera, a director for Kenny and Sam's that represents businesses in employment disputes. So tell us about this decision. Sure, I'd be happy to. So this was a decision that was issued by the Massachusetts highest court, the SJC. It was a decision that was issued in April of 2022. It's Reuter versus City of Methuen. And basically, this decision held that an employer that is late on wages that an employee earns 
is automatically liable for treble damages plus attorney's fees and costs. It is a groundbreaking decision because before this decision was issued, an employer arguably could avoid being hit with treble damages, attorney's fees, and costs if it paid the employee in full for all wages earned before the employee filed a complaint. And therefore, there was some wiggle room and an employer could avoid being hit with uh, significant liquidated damages via treble damages, attorney's fees, and costs. So this decision changed that dramatically. And now, if an employer is late, and it could be a day, (laughs) it could be two days, it, it doesn't really matter how long the employer is late. If the wages are paid late, the employer is automatically on the hook for treble damages, attorney's fees, and costs. So was this the court interpreting a statute or was there another reason behind the decision, you know, the why of the triple damages? This was the court interpreting a statute that has been in the books for a while. But like I mentioned earlier, even though the statute provides for attorney fees and treble damages in the event of of late paid wages, employers could do away with that by making the employee whole before an action was filed and before a complaint was filed. So it was the court interpreting a pre-existing statute. Does the reason for the non-payment of wages matter? Say it's something beyond the control of the employer, like a paycheck that's lost in the mail. Great question. It does not matter. (laughs) Uh, It is a no-mercy statute. It is strict liability for the employer and the reason does not matter. It could be a situation in which the employer has no idea that the payroll provider made an error, or as you mentioned, a check gets lost in the mail, or it could be you know, a clerical mistake that happens and for whatever reason, there's an error made on a paycheck that is issued to an employee and the employee is short a certain amount of wages on that check. Regardless of the reason, It does not matter because it really is a no-mercy statute. It's a no-mercy decision that employers are are stuck with and trying to, you know, implement best practices and protocols to avoid potential liability under the Wage Act because, you know, depending on how much money an employee makes, depending on, you know, how many employees are paid late, the damages and the monetary amount at issue can quickly skyrocket and create massive exposure for an employer. So what was the general reaction from management when this decision came out? I mean, was there panic? Was it, okay, we can do that, no problem? The reaction is is shock, and the, the reaction is dismay, and the reaction is, you know, how can we make this things work, and, and what can we do to avoid human error? Because we're human. Right, that the people who are entering the time, sure, maybe they're relying on software to enter time, but there there often is a human element involved when somebody is, is being paid. And people make mistakes. So the fact that employers uh, now are stuck with this no mercy decision, no mercy statute, it, it is shocking. Um, and, and employers still struggle with it when issues arise. And there are very good reasons why there was a mistake there's a very good reason why, you know, somebody misread something that was on a, on a timesheet that was handwritten and misinterpreted it. And it really 
it really doesn't matter. So this is a decision. It's, it's really difficult for employers to deal with it, understand it, and they're trying to work really hard to, again, uh, avoid liability under the statute. So say an employer wants to fire someone. Something comes up. They found out that the employee did something egregious, and they want the employee off the premises that moment. Do they have to hand them a paycheck at the same time? So if there is something that happens and an employee needs to be off the premise ASAP, what needs to happen is one of two things. One, the employer would need to have a check in hand to pay that person on the day of termination. Or two, if that's not doable for whatever reason, and there could be you know legitimate reasons why an employer just can't have a check available on that day. What the employer would need to do to avoid liability under this statute would be to suspend that employee. And it could be without pay. You can suspend without pay through the effective date of the termination. And then the effective date of the termination needs to be the day on which the employer can ensure that they will have a check in their hands available to pay that employee or payment can be made via direct deposit. It doesn't really matter. It could be either or. But the ability to just terminate somebody on the spot and not be able to pay them in full on the date of the termination, regardless of the reason for the termination, that ability nowadays has sort of been depleted if an employer wants to avoid liability under uh, this decision and under the Massachusetts Wage Act. So I don't know if there are any stats about this, but have you seen less on-the-spot firings then? Yes, I have seen less on-the-spot firings, and what I have been advising and encouraging and recommending that my clients do is have management be adequately trained. So have your managers undergo management training so that they understand the importance of following this protocol of a suspension without pay or an administrative leave without pay pending the the effective date of termination. Um, And companies are being more careful with that in order to avoid uh, liability under the statute. And I know you've said that some employers are more closely overseeing the payroll providers. That's exactly right, because um, oftentimes what happens is an employer will submit the payroll information to the payroll provider, and then will just rely on the payroll provider to do the right thing and pay the employees uh, the way that they need to be paid. But there have been mistakes that have happened on the payroll providers and really through no fault of the payroll provider. What I mean is they're not intentionally trying to make a mistake, but human error occurs, clerical error occurs, and therefore employers are now encouraged and are developing practice of overseeing the payroll provider, the way in which these wages are paid to be sure that the the wages are being paid correctly and that there are no mistakes and that wage payments aren't canceled or or made, you know, in a way that isn't consistent with what the employee should be paid for the wages earned in that pay period. So I was reading about this. Can businesses speed up the whole payroll process? I think they can, and it, it's something that, that each company would have to work out with the payroll provider. In other words, a payroll provider typically will have a date you know, by which the information needs to be submitted so that payroll can be made via X day. 
And so businesses need to work closely with the payroll providers to ensure that not only that all wages are being paid, but that the wages are being paid to employees within six days of the conclusion of the pay period within which the wages are earned. Because this is also an issue for your current active employees, because the statute, uh, for the most part, with a few exceptions, requires that employees be paid within six days of the conclusion of the pay period. And it is imperative that all companies are ensuring that that happens uh, on a timely manner. Have more employees been suing since this decision? Yes, more employers, uh, at least from in, in our practice and what I have seen here in my practice and my firm, yes, we are seeing our clients be sued um, for non-payment of wages and sometimes for uh, minimal amounts of, of late payments. And when I mean minimal, I'm talking about, you know, a few thousands of dollars, not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, we're seeing more lawsuits, we're seeing more litigation, we're seeing more demand letters um, because there's plaintiff's lawyers, you know, who are who are sending demand letters or who are filing these complaints, assuming that the late payment is clear, you know, that there's there's clear evidence that the that the wages were paid late. The fact that a plaintiff side lawyer will be able to be to recover attorney's fees, I think, has played a role in this as well. Um, and they're just alleging, you know, trouble damages plus payment of attorney's fees. In the opinion, was there any talk of like why it's important to protect employees in this way? Yes, there is a discussion in the opinion about that. And basically the discussion centers on the fact that employees are relying on their wages um, to make a living. And when you're dealing with employees who live paycheck by paycheck, it is important that those employees be paid timely. And there's there's really no excuse for an employer to withhold uh, wages that an employee earns unnecessarily so or beyond the time within which, you know, the employee should have been paid. So the discussion centers on, you know, protecting employees, protecting employees' well-being and ensure that they're timely paid for wages that they're earned. Because, again, employees, for the most part, are relying on payment of their wages to make a living and provide for their for their families. And and the case talks about, you know, the need for the employee to pay for housing, transportation, food, clothing, tuition, medical expenses, etc. So employees can really be harmed if they are uh, paid late. Any final thoughts? I think the only final thought that I'll throw in there is that uh, given this decision and the implications that stem from the decision, the time is ripe for employers to be reviewing bonus plans, commission plans, um, and any any type of compensation that an employee receives that could be construed as a, as a wage under the Massachusetts Wage Act to ensure that not only are those plans legally compliant, um, but to ensure that to the extent a form of compensation uh, constitutes or could constitute a wage under the statute, that they have processes and, and protocols in place to ensure timely payment, And like I said, you know, to ensure that those plans are compliant with the statute. Thanks so much for being on the show, Michelle. That's Michelle D'Oliveira, a director for Kenny and Sam's. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. 
I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.